Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, we are going to be finishing our Getting Into Law School series. In the last few episodes, we've been exploring a few of the big milestones of the law school application process. This week, we'll be talking about timelines and navigating the different components of application portals. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the Ontario Law School Application Service. I mean, let's start off with timeline. And I mean, I would love to hear about your experience and how much time you budgeted to to apply for law school. Oh, definitely. So I'm going to exclude the LSAT in this calculation because, of course, the time to study for that and everything is just another beast in itself. Since I did decide to apply to law school a bit last minute, I only gave myself, I would say, about a month to prepare. Um, And that includes reaching out to my references and the amount of time that they had to submit it. I think moving forward, I would recommend to anyone who's planning on doing this in the future to give yourself a bit more time, especially for references. In my case, I was lucky that these people um, I kept in touch with on a regular basis. So I was able to kind of hammer in the fact that I was a you know, it was a bit of a short timeline, I'm sorry about that, whatnot, and that they had to have it submitted by whatever time. But if you don't have, you know, as close of a relationship with your references, which is very likely, then I would definitely give them more time. Uh, It took me a couple of months. So the first time I applied to law school, it took me a a couple months uh, over the summer to really work on it. And then the entirety of the uh, fall semester of my fourth year. So for instance, um, Canadian law schools, Southern Ontario law schools, most of their application deadlines are, uh, they take place at the beginning of November. If I'm not mistaken, they're normally November 1st. I think they're very strict about that. I, I went until November 1st and I started uh, right before the summer. The second time I applied to law school, I definitely did not take as much time mainly because I was very familiar with the system. So it took me a couple of months again, but I started in the fall. Uh, I would recommend maybe not doing it within that short of a time simply because of logistical reasons. Even if you are very familiar with the form of the application, you need to be reaching out to refer- uh, references. You need to be making sure that the people who can speak for you, they're very aware of your application. They're not just going to be getting a random call or email from you know, the the portal, the set of law schools that you're interested in applying to. I think that's just very good etiquette and common courtesy. So be very mindful of time, not necessarily because of your ability, but for the logistical convenience and etiquette of the people who will be helping you. Next, I, I, I want us to talk really quickly about the undergrad to law school pipeline. We'll talk quickly about it, mainly because the two of us, we didn't pursue that specific pipeline. But I I wonder for you, was there a specific reason why you didn't go down that rather conventional route? I would say the only reason was that I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, So I wasn't ready to apply for graduate school or for law school. I was kind of lost, I would say, Um, in probably because of my type A personality in undergraduate school. I really, really focused on getting those grades to the point where... I kind of put aside and disregarded other really important things like you know, as simple as my social life, you know, and, and spending time with family and friends. I was really studying all the time and then 
working part-time and then my extracurriculars volunteering so I think I experienced some sort of burnout and also I was discouraged because I felt like I put so much effort into my undergraduate degree I got awards at the end of my program um, I got the governor general's award and I felt like it was all for nothing so I needed some time to kind of get through that and I think, you know, moving on into the workforce really, really helped. I think that's a really, that's a great answer. And I think you made some excellent points, mainly that I would not recommend applying to law school for the sake of applying for law, to law school. Um, I would not recommend paying all that money and going through a very stressful standardized testing process and a very stressful application process if if you're hesitant about it, because one, it's a lot of time and two, it's a lot of money. Um, I I did do that immediate undergrad to law school pipeline, but ultimately I, I walked away from a few offers because I just did not feel, I did not feel passionate about those choices. I did not feel confident that it was something I really wanted to do. Similar to Sarah, I was quite lost and confused and ultimately quite uh, dissatisfied with that specific um, trajectory. So I was just like, you know what, this is not the choice right now. Maybe it'll be the choice one day, but I do not want to commit to a three-year degree and pay quite a bit of money for it if, if it wasn't something that I was dead set on doing. Something else I'll say too is if you have not begun the application process, it is very worth considering if you're going from undergrad directly into law school, whether you want to stay at the same uh, institution, if you want to stay close to home, if you want to study abroad. I will say that law school can't, you know, like any kind of, well, let me just speak about graduate school. It, any kind of postgraduate or professional program can be very arduous. And if being close to friends, if being close to family, if being in an environment that you're familiar with helps you deal with the stressors of life, then that is something you truly want to consider very, very seriously. If you have never been an international student before, if you were, and I'll, I'll be very blunt about this, if you are not an American, but who is perhaps interested in becoming an international student studying in the US, it might be worth it to reach out to some international students who are studying in the US because it is useful and informative and realistic to brace yourself on the kinds of loneliness and logistical hardships of being an international student. I think that is something that is quite, um, being a Canadian studying at Columbia, um, quite uh, important to take into consideration. Definitely. I think that location is one of the most important factors to consider when choosing your law school. Of course, we all get caught up in ranks and different things like that. And not that you don't have to consider that at all, but I feel like location and those factors can be a lot more important because they can influence how you're going to perform in law school as well. So we all know law school is no cheap endeavor. It's very, very expensive. So if you know that you're going to be, or if you're considering moving far away, make sure to also research the cost of living. Let's say in Toronto, for example, it's very expensive to live on your own. And a lot of the financial aid, especially if you're going directly out of undergrad, is probably going to be based partially on your parents' income. So you need to consider if you're going to have that support or not, because realistically, none of us would be able to work full time in law school or 
not none of us, there are some, you know, phenomenal people out there, but it's very, very difficult to do. And I would definitely not recommending, you know, having that at, at the top of your list of, of what to do to get to a specific school. So I think it's definitely something that you should consider and, and almost make a priority. And you need to think about the kinds of physical and mental tolls that working, especially working full time during law school, like the kinds of tolls that will take on your body. Because maybe you can do that for one year. Can you do that for all three years? Can you do that for three years and then immediately enter the workplace in a very high pressured career? You know, maybe in the immediate kind of sprint, that'll be very realistic. But you have to also think about whether or not the older you get, right? This is no longer undergrad. Maybe you have, maybe you're a mature student like us and you're coming for, from a couple of years back into school. Considering location uh, is, is very, very important. Something else too, and um, I, I have thought about this, I've talked to people about this. I know that in the U.S., if you're interested in studying in the U.S., there's something called the T14, right? Yes. So um, if you know schools like Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, et cetera, et cetera, I'm sure you can fill those in. There are a couple of very, very excellent law schools. And that's a general because the U.S. has many, many different kinds of colleges. So you kind of want to make sure you're going to a very reputable, well-known law school. In Canada, what I've been told is that because there are, in comparison, fewer large post-secondary institutions and fewer law schools, in general, um, you should consider where you would want to practice to be a very large factor in which law school you go to. Has that been your the kind of advice you've received as well? Yes, and I definitely agree. So let's say you want to practice in Ontario, try to study in Ontario. Now, if you want to practice specifically in Toronto, that doesn't mean you have to study specifically in Toronto, however. Um, depending on the type of, of law you want to practice, but at least preparing yourself for the appropriate bar exam. I would say that, you know, there is also, I think Canadian law school, the main thing that I've heard dif differentiates them if we disregard that would be the networking opportunities. But you can get those pretty much anywhere. Um, I know that some schools are renowned, let's say U of T, we all know it's renowned for corporate law. But that doesn't mean that you won't be able to be a Bay Street lawyer if you don't go to U of T. That's just not true. So I wouldn't, you know, limit myself to that. I feel like, luckily, so far, at least in Canada, law schools have are pretty pretty equivalent across the board in terms of, you know, just the quality of education and different things like that. So that's why I think, like we were discussing, that the, the location is so important in this case. Yeah. Let's move on to the actual process. What I mean by that is we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about law school portals. So the two of us, I believe the two of us have only ever interacted with the Ontario let me check. Let me check the full name. The Ontario Law School Application Service, or OLSAS. Yes. Yes. That is a platform where you can apply to many, many Ontario law schools, and you submit your grades, you submit your work experience, extracurriculars, you submit your personal statement, you submit your diversity statements, you submit your references, you chuck that all into that portal, you pay the fee, and then the law schools receive that kind of information from you and begin the selection process. When we navigated OLSAS, 
we came up with a couple of a couple of tips and strategies, a couple of maybe this was more difficult than it needed to be. You should pay attention to a couple of the logistical nuances. So why don't you get started with those, Sarah? So for me, I had, you know, specific kind of obstacles because I was coming from out of province. Like I mentioned in the first episode, I did do my undergraduate degree in Ontario. However, when you're applying to law school, you need to provide all of your post-secondary documentation, so transcripts, diplomas, what have you. And so I did attend CJEP in Quebec, and so I needed to provide my transcript for that. Now, for anyone coming from out of province, whether it be from Quebec or another province other than Ontario, anticipate delays with out of province documents. My school in Quebec was very quick at sending the information to OLSAS. However, for them to actually upload it, for them to actually send it to the school afterwards, there was quite a delay in that, to the point where I think end of November or something like that, I was contacted from some of the law schools I applied to telling me that they hadn't received my CJEP documentation. So then I had to run after OLSAS and everything like that. And it was just a very messy process. So and I'm sure that's so stressful. It was very stressful. I was worried that it would affect actually my chance of, of being admitted. So anyone coming from out of province, please, please do that early, early on. You might also not be as lucky as I am in terms of the responsiveness of my CJEP. It's a much smaller school than, say, a university in BC or any other province, actually. So, and they usually have standardized timelines and, you know, it might take them a week, two weeks, what have you. It depends on the school to actually send the documentation. So the earlier, the better. I would even recommend as soon as the portal opens to get that done. I, I will say this, Sarah, you are not the only one, you know, in terms of being from out of province to experience this. Typical Ontario fashion. Ontario can be very Ontario-centric. Ontario uh, university portals can be very, very helpful and easy for Ontario students and quite inaccessible for students out of prov province and certainly for international. So if you know that you belong into those categories, I would take the initiative to be very proactive about that. I would also say, and we said this in our in our last segment, please have your references ready. The last thing you want is for one of your referees to be surprised that you are even applying, you, for your referees to forget, to have forgotten who you who you are, to not know the connection, to not have a you know glowing review ready. Not only does that um, not only does that impair your ability to get into law school, but also it's really terrible etiquette. It should not be the way that you are treating the people who have helped you, your mentors, your career, the people who have really helped you in, you know, your previous professional experiences. Please have your references ready. What I will also say is, as someone who attended, is from Ontario, attended Ontario institutions, I have noticed that the portal can easily crash. I think that is because there are many, many stressed applicants who are constantly interacting with the site. If you know this, then one way that you can be proactive is to work on your application, not directly in the portal. Please put that in a separate Word doc, some kind of separate um, document, because the last thing you want is for you to type up something great, for you to carefully input the date, location, description, verification of your autobiographical sketch, and for the site to crash and for you to lose all of that. Unfortunately, that has happened to me. That takes very 
it takes a long time. And so to lose all of that work is pretty disheartening. So please, when you're interacting with any kind of application portal, make sure that you have tons of backups so that if something happens, you can easily just copy paste it straight back in. Let's move on to two of the, the large portfolio um, components, right? You're trying to tell these schools who you are. For Ontario schools, what they're really interested in is some kind of personal statement and then usually some kind of optional essay. Uh, we typically will call it a diversity statement. Let's start off with the personal statement, though. So what's really important with the personal statement, at least from, you know, the advice that I've gotten, I was lucky enough actually to participate in, in a pilot study about writing the personal statement. So some of the advice I'm going to be giving is based on that. So one thing is definitely make that personal statement narrative. So you want to tell the admissions team a story, even better if they're actually able to visualize it. So you want it to be descriptive. You want your language to be really evocative. Um, that helps them relate to you and really understand, you know, where you're coming from and your experiences and everything like that. Another really important tip is to include a why law statement. In this why law statement, there should be some sort of specificity. So let's say an area of law you're interested in. And it's important to really relate this reasoning as to why you want to go into law school with some of your personal experiences. Now, for some of you, you probably have no idea which area of law you want to go into. I know that Meg, for example, she's not sure. She has interest. I'm going in with an open mind and an open heart. <laughs> exactly. So if, you know, that's too specific for you to choose, you know, family law or corporate or anything like that, you can even go as simple as distinguishing between transactional law and litigation. Ultimately, just remember that you're not tied to what you say in your personal statement. So that if the admissions team admitted you and you originally said that you wanted to go into corporate law, they're not going to be following you to determine if you're actually going into corporate law. And rescind your degree. Exactly. No more law degree for you. It doesn't matter. So, you know, if you have an inkling as to, oh, this area of law is quite interesting to me and you can actually relate it to your experiences, then go ahead and use that. And it doesn't matter if you actually, you know, do your career in that field. Yeah. What I'll say too is even though you know, I know, Sarah, you have had a lot of experience in compliance. You are very, very passionate about going into corporate law. Wonderful. If you have that kind of passion from the onset, lean into it because the committee will be able to sense that kind of tone. If you are more like me and, you know, you're thinking, okay, there's many areas I'm interested in. I have, you know, kind of jack, jack of all trades. Nevertheless, choose to have one part of your life experience, your work experience, um, lean into, continue to be quite specific. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So for instance, as part of my personal statement, I wrote about taking part in a 10-week strike as well as interacting during a pandemic, um, being an international student, and how that made me really interested in the nuances of international and immigration law. That's what I mean, right? So you know, I, I am pretty fascinated by these topics, but by no means am I dead set. Nevertheless, there's a part of my own personal experience that is quite adjacent, if not extremely pertinent to those areas. So be, be that kind of level of specificity. Exactly. Meg, your example is perfect, um, especially for those of you that, you know, are unsure about an area of law. That's exactly what I meant when I was trying to 
um, you know, describe that specificity. It's really just to have that relate to you because they, they want to see why you would make a good lawyer yeah. and why you're actually going into law and to make sure that it's a passion and an interest and not just, oh, I want to go into law because lawyers have good careers and they make good money. Exactly. And unfortunately, that is not always the case. <laughs> yes. So great tip. Don't lead into that. Exactly. Please don't lead into that. Next, I really want to talk about this um, this optional essay. So when I applied to the law schools that I did, all of them allowed me to write an optional essay that was as long, if not sometimes longer, than the actual personal statement, which is very interesting. In general, we call it a diversity statement, but in general, the kinds of questions they ask you for this optional essay reduces to what sets you apart from other applicants. So you can you can take that and, and run with it. Um, Sarah, well, did you did you write the optional statement? Yes, I did. And I was very worried about it at the beginning uh, because I'd always associated diversity with your country of origin or your ethnicity. And, you know, I was born in Canada, born in Quebec. Um, I didn't feel like I fit into that category. But what I've come to learn is that diversity is very wide in law. And like you said, it's just really anything that you can bring to the table that differentiates you from other applicants and that can bring, you know, kind of a fresh perspective to the field. So, for example, what I focused on in my optional essay really was uh, my language. So the fact that I'm bilingual, that I speak French, um, and that now I am, uh, you know, a francophone, a minority in a, you know, anglophone province. And, you know, potentially different struggles that come with that. And also, um, I did relate it, of course, to the accessibility of law and, and legal services. So it can be something that potentially you consider minor, is an integral part of your identity. Like for me, I never really focused on on my language other than, you know, when I told people I came from Quebec, it's a common question, do you speak French? But I do believe I'm very fluent in English, and so it was never really much of a barrier compared to potentially other people living in the province coming from the regions. I was very lucky that both of my parents were bilingual and I lived so close to Ottawa that most pretty much everyone, I would say, even in the city I lived in, spoke uh, English as well. So, but, but still, I was able to kind of use that as what I can bring to the table that's different. And what and sets you apart. Exactly. And, you know, potentially being an advocate and to help for those provincial, you know, minorities, like, like I've been doing, luckily, as a part of my work as well. So it kind of all tied in together. What I will say is be genuine have evidence, lean into it, but don't milk it, right? Uh, the optional essay can be both an ability for your portfolio to shine, as well as an opportunity for the committee to be a little unimpressed with how saccharine uh, <laughs> your application can be. And what I mean by that is, um, when it comes to diversity, again, Sarah, I completely agree with with what you said. Um, when I did the optional essay for the first time, uh, during my first process, I definitely leaned into the immigration uh, background. I definitely leaned into, you know, my experience as a woman of color. Um, I definitely leaned into language as well and learning English and everything like that. For my second optional statement, when I reapplied to law school a couple of years later, I just knew that that wasn't the most immediate and pertinent aspect of what set me apart, right? For me, it was definitely why did I embark 
upon a PhD program straight out of undergrad? And why am I leaving the PhD program to go to law school? Because I knew for a fact that the committee would be looking at my education history, would be looking at my experience and go, hmm, why did, why did Meg leave Columbia? I could anticipate that being a very big question. So I decided to lean into that, be very, very um, assertive and about, about, about answering that question. And I let that be the diverse portion of my portfolio. Oh, no, and I agree with what you said. It's really important to be authentic and honest in your optional essay and your personal statement. Yes, definitely. If you know that you have something that the admissions committee is going to wonder about, don't shy away from explaining it. In my personal statement, for example, I did touch on the fact that there was going to be that gap in my transcript and why it took me longer than, say, the average student to finish my undergraduate degree. So it's not... You don't have to worry about it being a weakness. You just have to explain it to them. And honestly, it's something that I was pleasantly surprised about because I was always worried that the gap, honestly, in my transcript would prevent me from getting into law school or getting into a graduate school if I decided to apply because of the whole residency requirements and the full-time versus part-time. And so I was told by some people and, and potentially... They were wrong, but that the fact that I had one semester where I did not attend school would count as me not doing full-time in, in that academic year. Uh, but from, from what I can tell with law school, at least just providing an explanation was sufficient and it, it didn't hinder me. I think that's really, really wonderful. Um, one last element that we're going to touch upon, and we're going to touch upon this very, very... Um, succinctly simply because one of our next episodes is going to go do a proper deep dive into networking is we're going to talk a little bit about references during the application process. So what's really interesting is that at least for OLSAS, at least for a lot of Ontario schools, it's become the case where a lot of schools no longer need the references. Those are no longer a mandatory portion of the application. And I can definitely say this because when I there was a three-year gap between the first time I applied to law school and the second time I applied to law school. And even within that gap, there were schools that no longer require references. Nevertheless, you should always keep references in your back pocket and you should always build relationships early. Definitely. For example, building relationships early is something I've come to learn later on. Um, I would have loved to know that in undergrad. But for example... In undergrad, I kept to myself. I didn't really talk to teachers, didn't try to build relationships with them. Honestly, I was very worried of looking like a kiss-ass, which everyone, you will not look like a kiss-ass just because you decide to speak with your teachers and build genuine relationships with them. Um, that was a wrong assumption that I made, and unfortunately, it did, it did make it more difficult for me to actually get references later on. So... What you want to do is you actually want to connect with them because you want them to remember who you are when you reach out. You don't need to be the top of the class. You don't need to have gotten an A plus in the class for them to be willing to write a reference for you and a positive and a glowing reference. You just need to connect with them as a human being, as a person, and then you can build that genuine connection and they will want to help you. They will want to support you. And of course, I'm not saying don't work hard in their class or anything like that. You want to showcase the appropriate skills that they're going to be able to describe in the reference and, and that are going to show that you can be a good law student and that you can be a good lawyer. 
but there's no requirement to, you know, that it was an easy class for you, for example, or anything like that. You could have struggled in the class. And that doesn't mean that that's a professor that you can't reach out to. And if you are listening to this and you're like me and you've, you know, applied to law school multiple times or you're interested in redoing the application process, uh, do not feel as if, you know, your previous references are suddenly unavailable to you. At least that's been my experience. I've had wonderful mentors. I've had wonderful teachers and coaches and employers who, when I reach out to them in advance in a professional and warm way and remind them who I am, the kinds of work um, experiences that I've had, the kinds of relationships I've had with them, they've been incredibly warm and gracious. So, you know, very often, we'll talk about this in a, in a later episode, you are kind of like one of your the first people that can hinder your experiences and options to reach out to references. So so definitely, you know, punch up, punch, punch up when it comes to yourself, right? Exactly. And also, um, from what I've heard from people that give references relatively regularly, for the most part, if you reach out to someone and they would not give you a good reference, they will not write one. They will be honest with you and they will tell you, look, I'm not interested in doing this for you. So I wouldn't so the references, of course, are kept secret for the most part, unless your referees want to send them to you and, and that's up to them. But it's it's through a system so that you can't actually read what they're writing about you. Now, I wouldn't worry if they've accepted to write you a reference because that mostly is going to mean that they actually believe in you and they have positive things to say about you. Let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. Thank you for listening to our first series, our Getting Into Law School series. Next week, we're going to be talking a little about networking, how you build relationships, how you can feel more confident, reaching out to people you don't know, how you can sustain current relationships. Rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. Check out our social media. Check out our Instagram account. At Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. To keep in touch as well as to keep up to date with the kinds of episodes we're going to release, the kinds of guests we hope to bring onto our show. Thank you so much to our wonderful technical producer, Adam. And thank you listeners for tuning in. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Goodbye.